Thank you for listening to this podcast from Living Hope Church in Skokie, Illinois, featuring the preaching of Pastor Daniel Mann. For more information about our church, please visit us online at livinghopechicago.com. We hope that today's message will encourage you in your relationship with God. I want to invite the rest of you to take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Today's kind of a special and unique service because we have baptism and we're going to have uh, communion. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table here at the end of the service. So we're jumping into things maybe just a little bit sooner. We normally have another song or two. Uh, but we'll sing towards the end of the service when we come to communion. Uh, if you're new, we're going through a, a, a verse-by-verse study through 1 Corinthians. Uh, we've, we've gone through five chapters. I think we've had uh, eight messages so far in this series. I believe this is the ninth. Maybe this is the eighth. This is the eighth. We've had seven messages so far. If you'd like to catch up, if you're interested in knowing more about the study, if you go to livinghopechicago.com, you can find the other sermons there that will catch you up to speed on this. This was a letter written by the Apostle Paul about A.D., um, I think it was about A.D. 55. Uh, So about two decades after Jesus died and was resurrected, the Apostle Paul traveled around uh, preaching the gospel. He would establish churches. This one was established in the ancient city of Corinth. And now he's writing a letter back to them, instructing them in their walk with Christ. And we've learned a lot about this church over the last few weeks Um, that there was a lot of division in the church, Um, that they had kind of a a party uh, and faction mentality, that they would follow a certain group, and they were split up into three or four different groups. Some were following Paul, some were following another teacher called Apollos, some were following Peter, and Paul was writing to them to say, listen, we're all three of us, we're co-laborers with Christ. We're on the same team preaching the same message. You're, You're getting your eyes off of Christ and you're, you're looking to man. And we've noticed that they were built up with pride. We've seen that they were kind of a little bit um, desensitized to sin within their congregation that we looked last week, that they actually had a member of the church who was living in, in sexual sin, and they were not confronting this person with their sin. So Paul wrote to them in chapter 5 to say, listen, you need to, you need to confront this individual who's living and practicing sin. And he even said, you need to put this person out of the church fellowship because they're living in open and blatant contradiction to the gospel. So we've seen there's a, there's a number of problems. And we're going to see in chapter 6, there's more problems that we're going to talk about. But 40 million, 40 million. Uh, That's the number of estimated lawsuits uh, that happen every year that are filed every year in the United States. Now, that is according to uh, the U.S. Financial Education Foundation. Uh, It could be less than that. Uh, But I think we can safely say they're in the millions. Millions of lawsuits filed every year. There are over one million lawyers uh, in this country. And if there's one million lawyers, that means that there's a lot of work for them. So that leads me to believe that that 40 million may not be too far off. So... Uh, Certainly, in in our day and age, lawsuits are something so common. And in ancient Greek culture, they were also known uh, for their involvement in the courts. They would sue people, uh, and Paul's going to write to them about that very thing. But before we look at that, I just want you to think about something. I think lawsuits, in many ways, reveal our human depravity. Uh, The fact that we even have to have lawsuits 
uh, really shows that the sinfulness of our hearts. It shows that we, as human beings, uh, that we are either one, we're prone to cheat others, so people have to sue us because we're prone to, to cheat them, or it shows that maybe the person has done nothing wrong, but we're just selfishly pursuing something. And so either way, it, it so often reveals uh, the depravity of our hearts. I mean, think of it this way. One day when Christ returns and the curse is removed and sin is defeated and righteousness reigns forevermore, there will be no more lawsuits in the kingdom of God. So that right there reveals to us uh, that lawsuits in themselves are a, a, a symptom of the sinfulness of our hearts. The fact that we even have these disputes at all reveal our sinful natures. But, but since we live in this fallen world, and since you and I are, are prone uh, to sinful and selfish tendencies, how should we handle disputes? How should we handle this type of topic? Uh, some questions I hope we can work through today, and even if we don't have absolutely definitive answers in every way, but just some, some ways that we can get some principles. Here's some questions. What should Christians do if they have been cheated or wronged in some way? Who should Christians seek counsel from if they've been wronged? Should Christians be involved in lawsuits at all? Uh, I think the passage that we're going to study, it may, may not answer uh, a, a, with an absolute yes or no in every one of those questions, but I think the, the passage ahead of us will give us some answers and it will give us some principles about those things that we're not quite certain about. So if you're able to stand, would you stand with me? And we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 1 and we're going to read all the way down to verse 11. Dare any of you, I mean, he starts this very straightforwardly. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers... Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you. Because ye go to law one with another, why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, or no, you do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, uh, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Think of that phrase. And such were some of you. But ye are washed. 
but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Will you pray with me? Father, in Christ we can say that we have been washed, we have been sanctified, we have been justified. And because we've been washed, because we've been sanctified, because we've been justified and in His name and by Your Spirit, we want to live in that way. And so I pray You would teach us today how to handle disputes in the church. Give us some wisdom for how we're to handle uh, when uh, we are mistreated. And we pray you'll give us the grace to respond as Christ did respond and as Christ calls us to respond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Paul gave a strong rebuke to the Corinthians for how they were handling disputes in the church. And what I'd like to speak to you about for just a few minutes is this simple topic that we can learn how to handle disputes in the church by heeding the rebuke that Paul gave. I think we find three uh, things here uh, that give us some direction about how to handle disputes. And because we have communion, I want us to be able to have plenty of time for that. I'm going to try to go through these quickly. If you'd like to write them down, I would encourage you to do that. The first one is that, uh, how, how do we handle disputes? The first one is that we need to know our identity and our future in Christ as His people. You see, before you can understand why they were taking each other before law, why they were handling disputes so poorly, you have to understand that there was a a root problem, something fundamentally deep inside that was the problem. It it wasn't that first that they were going to um, judges to handle this dispute. The first problem that Paul addressed is he says, you don't know who you are. You don't understand who you are, and you don't understand your future. He uses this phrase several times in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's this phrase, know ye not. Or, or how we would say today, don't you know? You ever say that to your kids? Like they do something crazy? Don't you know? Don't you know that you don't leave the milk out all night? And I don't know what it was. Don't you know that you don't leave the light on all night long? He says, don't you know? And, and it's as if Paul is showing his, his intense displeasure with, with, by, with their actions with this, what? That's what he's saying, really. Is, Wait, what? Don't, don't you realize? You see, they didn't understand uh, who they were. He, he calls them in, uh, in verse 1 and 2, he calls them saints. And we talked about that way back in the first lesson. Saints is, literally means holy ones, those who have been made holy. Those who are heirs of God, who belong to His kingdom. He says, you are saints. They didn't understand that they are saints. They are, as we read in verse 11, that they had been washed, that they have been sanctified. To be a saint is one who has been sanctified, who's been set apart, who's been made holy. He says, you don't understand who you are. You are saints who've been washed, who've been sanctified, who've been justified. They did not know who they were, and they did not understand their future in Christ. He says, listen, I don't understand what you're doing. You're taking disputes before an unsaved judge, but don't you realize that one day in Christ's kingdom, you are going to judge the world. You, with Christ, are going to judge angels. 
I mean, that's what he says. Look, look at verse uh, 3. He says, uh, Know ye not that we shall judge angels? Now, I don't know what all that means, and neither do you. But what it means is that Christ is supreme ruler over the universe, and one day He's going to usher in His kingdom, and His Word says that we as His people will rule and reign with Him. He says, you are taking these small, insignificant matters before people who don't know Christ, and you don't realize that one day Christ is going to entrust you to rule and reign in His own kingdom. They didn't know who they were. They didn't know their future. And the irony of all this is Paul says that they're going before these unsaved judges about trivial matters, but one day God would use them to judge the world and angels. Their mishandling of these disputes was a direct result of not knowing who they were and not knowing their future. Now, I'm not necessarily endorsing this movie, so so just... Play along with me for a second if you know this movie. But as a kid, this movie used to come on TV a lot. It's a movie called Overboard. I don't know if you've ever seen it or not. I think got Goldie Hawn and uh, Kurt someone in it. I can't remember exactly. Uh, Kurt who? Russell. Russell. Kurt Russell. Again, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not endorsing the movie. I'm not saying go out and watch it. It's probably got some things that Christians shouldn't watch. And I was probably being very unchristian when I watched it. Um, but here's the, 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 I have a point with the story. It's basically about a wealthy woman uh, who had, she was aboard a luxury yacht. She had hired a local carpenter to come and do some work. And she was basically a jerk to him the whole time. And he was, uh, she was condescending. She was arrogant. And, and he wasn't really going to take any of that. He was kind of a, a rough person himself. He was unsophisticated. And uh, he was of low social status. But he wasn't going to take any of this derogatory uh, treatment from her. So they kind of had a little bit of arguments going back and forth. They didn't hit it off at well at all, to say the least. However, later that night, she was reaching for something on her yacht. She falls off the yacht. She hits her head, and she's rushed to the hospital. And at the hospital, she's suffering from amnesia. No ID on her. No one knows who she is. Obviously, with amnesia, she doesn't know who she is. There's a news story that night saying, we're trying to locate this woman's family. She doesn't know who she is because of her fall. We don't know who she is. If you can help us, will you come? And that guy says, I have the perfect idea to get back at her. If you've seen the show, you know what happens. He goes to the hospital pretending to be her husband, bringing her back to his a low-income living, bringing him back to take care of all of his children, and she doesn't know that she's not his, or her, she, he, she doesn't know, she has no idea that, that, that this is not really her husband, but she seems like all this is so weird to her. She can't quite put her finger on it, but something is so strange about this. And so he, he's granted her release, he takes her home, and she's repulsed by his home, and the whole story is about that. But the point I'm trying to make is it's all about a woman who didn't know her true identity. And, and Paul loves this little prepositional phrase all through the New Testament. It's a simple phrase. You could learn it. And you and I can learn so much from it. It's this phrase, in Christ. In Christ. In Christ is, is our identity. In fact, in Ephesians 1, you don't have to turn there because I've got them on the screen, but Paul kind of goes through a, a rundown of a few things that describe our identity and our future in, in Christ. He talks about how that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Ephesians 1, 3. In verse 4, he says that in Him we're chosen. In, in verse 6, he says that we've been predestined to the standing of adult sons in the kingdom of God through Christ. In verse 6, that we've been accepted in Him. Uh, in verse 11, that we've obtained an inheritance in Him. 
And then in verse 14, that we've been sealed uh, with the Holy Spirit of promise. And he goes through a list helping us to see who we are and what our future is in Christ. Do you know who you are? Do you know your future? It is so important for God's people to know His Word because it's in His Word that He's revealed who we are and what our future is, and what He has planned for us. And it's inevitably so that if we don't know who we are, and if we don't know our future in Christ, it's inevitably that we are going to live below the standard of what God has for us. And that's exactly what was happening in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. They had forgotten who they were as the saints of God. They had forgotten the future as those who would one day rule and reign with Christ. And so because of that, they were living so low beneath the standard of God for them. Number two, not only uh, should believers know their identity and their future, we're talking about how should we handle disputes? Well, it starts with knowing who we are, knowing our future. Well, then number two, it's that believers should not take their disputes to the unsaved, but to the saved. He repeats this over and over again, that because they didn't understand their identity, who they were in Christ as saints and their future as those who would judge in His kingdom, they were making another blunder. They were taking their disputes with one another to unsaved people. They were going to people who did not know Christ and seeking wisdom and decisions from them. He says this in verse 2. He talks about how they are going before um, the unsaved. He talks about it in verse 4. He talks about it in verse 5 and 6, that if they have some matter, some dispute, that the first place they should turn, the first people that they should turn to, are God's people. And now this makes perfect logical sense. It really does if you think about it. I mean, who has God chosen to rule one day over the nations with His Son? He's chosen His own. He's chosen saints. So if God has chosen saints, and if God has gifted His saints with His Spirit and with wisdom, then why should we not turn to those whom God has chosen? Why would we turn to those who God has rejected to handle uh, disputes? You may have some questions about that. I hope to answer that in a second. But he asserts here, this is Paul, Under the inspiration of God, God speaking through Paul, he asserts that saints, believers... By the way, who's a saint? All of God's people are saints. I have a neighbor who used to say, you know, one time I was was Catholic, grew up Catholic, she said I was really close to a saint, almost touched a saint one time. I said, touch me. You touch a saint. Right there. (laughs) Boom. Write it on your bucket list. If you're saved, you're a saint. That's what God says. He says, all who are in Christ Jesus, who have been made holy, who have been brought near to Christ. So he's saying that believers, saints, are more capable and better qualified to judge things in this world than the unsaved. I mean, after all, God's chosen them for much bigger things. He's just, what do you think is more a bigger deal? A property dispute that you're not really sure how to handle or one day ruling and reigning over the nations with Christ? What's bigger responsibility? Ruling and reigning in Christ's kingdom with Him. Paul is saying you are minimizing the Spirit of God and what God works and does through His own people. How much more qualified are believers to handle 
small matters, he calls them. And anything that has to do with this world in comparison with the kingdom of God is small potatoes. It's small matters. You know, the things that you are stressed about right now, the things that you and I are worried about right now are small in comparison to what is coming in the kingdom of God. His point was simple. If believers have a dispute, especially if they have a dispute among one another, brother and brother, sister and sister in Christ, brother in Christ, sister in Christ, if they have a, especially if they have a dispute with one another, that dispute should be taken before wise Christians in the church for a verdict. Now, he's using a little sarcasm here. He's saying, if you have this matter, take it before the, the least esteemed person in the church. He's saying the person that in the church you think knows the, the least about God, take it to him first. He's saying that kind of a tongue-in-cheek there. He didn't mean that literally. But basically what he's saying here is trying to get their attention to say, you're taking this to unsaved people. Isn't there even one wise Christian in your church? How is there not one person that you couldn't take this matter to, that you had to go to someone who doesn't have the Spirit of God, who doesn't have the wisdom of God, who doesn't know the Word of God, and get wisdom from them. He says this is madness. It's madness. In his book Onward, Russell Moore shares this illustration I found helpful, helping us understand what it's like when when Christians uh, sue each other or when Christians go to, to unsaved people for these type of disputes to be handled. He says it's the equivalent of a presidential candidate having to go to an outside consulting firm to pick his vice presidential nominee. I mean, can you imagine planning to vote for someone as president, but the person doesn't feel qualified to even choose their vice president? They have to have someone, a consulting firm, tell them who would be the best. You're thinking, how can we trust this person to decide whether or not we should go to war? They can't even pick a vice president candidate. How can we trust this person with our economy that they can't even know and choose a a competent vice president? You see, it it, it doesn't make sense. They also say that it's the equivalent to, or Russell Moore said, it's equivalent to the American embassy in Russia appealing to Moscow to negotiate a salary dispute between two diplomats. He says, such would signal an embassy that doesn't see the sending company has jurisdiction in such matters, not the nation to which they have been sent. He's saying they don't understand this dynamic. This, the, 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 the Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, again, they were taking these disputes before the unsaved. And Paul says, is there not someone in your church who can guide you to know the will and mind of Christ? Let me give you this quote. It's by Dr. Gordon Fee. He said, The absurdity, it's on the screen, the absurdity of the Corinthian position is that God's newly formed people will someday judge the very world before whom they are now appearing and asking for a judgment. Not only does such an action give the lie to who they are as the people of God, but it is done in the presence of unbelievers, the very people for whom the church exists as God's alternative. He's saying not only do they not understand who they are, but they're also harming their own witness because these are the ones that they're sent to reach. They're sent to reach them. Why should we as believers take our disputes with one another to the saved rather to the unsaved, rather than to the unsaved? Well, it's because the unsaved do not have kingdom values. They do not have the spirit of God. Therefore, they don't have the mind of Christ. 
If you were here, I think it was the third message that we looked at. It was from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul talked about the difference between the natural man who does not have the Spirit and the spiritual one who has God's Spirit, who's taught by God, who's instructed in truth. He's saying you're taking these things that, are, that you're trying to handle, these disputes you have with one another, you're taking them to people who don't have God's Spirit rather than taking them to people who have God's Spirit and have God's mind because they have God's Spirit. So when we take our disputes to the unsaved rather than to the saved, we are showing, listen carefully, this is so important, we're showing that we value worldly, earthly wisdom more than we value uh, the mind of Christ and the values of His kingdom. When you have a dispute or when you need counsel, Paul says that you are defined a mature, wise Christian who has a, a handle on the Scriptures, who can help you to know how to handle the situation. Now, you may be thinking, yeah, but, I mean, I've got a legal dispute, and they know nothing about real estate. I've got a medical dispute, and they know nothing about medicine. And that may be so. And I'm not saying that there's not other ways that you need to seek counsel from. My question is, is who do you turn to first? Is your first priority to say, I've got this issue, there's some legal problems here, there's a lot of things I need to know about legally, but the first thing that I need to know is how would God have me to respond in this situation? What does God have to say in His Word about my reaction, about my response to this? That speaks volumes of what is truly priority to us. And we get to that moment. So first, seek out God's counsel. And Paul says we seek God's counsel through His Word and through those who are wise in His Word. Number three, finally, believers, how should we handle uh, disputes? Well, first, we have to know who we are and our future. That was their problem. Secondly, is we need to take these disputes, especially if it's among brother and sisters in Christ, especially we need to take these things to the saved who know Christ, who have the wisdom of Christ. Thirdly, believers should allow themselves to be wronged or deprived rather than engage in a legal dispute uh, with a brother in Christ. So we should allow ourselves to be wronged or deprived. Now, this flies in the face of this American way of life. This seems so strange. Wait, wait, wait. You mean, you mean I'm not to press for every single thing I can possibly... I'm not to squeeze that lemon until all the juice comes out of it. I'm not to get what's mine in every single situation. But wait. But, but, but wait. But... There's always that, isn't there? But Paul says, why are you not allowing yourselves to be wronged? Why are you unwilling at all to even be deprived convicting words. Verse 7 is very interesting. He says there's utterly fault among them. And the word fault means uh, to be overcome. It's the idea of a loss. And it's kind of a play on words because they've been talking about lawsuits. And Paul's saying in verse 7, you've already lost. He says, I don't care who, who wins the lawsuit. You've already lost. You've already lost because of how you're handling this. You've lost the bigger situation already. And that's your, your testimony. And the word utterly is complete. The idea is a complete loss, a complete utter failure is already present in their midst. 
He says, even if you win the lawsuit, you've lost something more important. You've already failed in a greater degree. Even if you fail in the lawsuit, you have failed to live out the gospel. You have failed to live out the gospel. So he says, why will you not take wrong? And that, the idea of take wrong means to undergo injustice, to allow yourself to be wronged, to allow yourself to sustain injustice. And then the word defrauded means to be deprived of something taken from us, to be robbed or, or stolen from something that belonged to us. And he's saying, rather than letting the dispute escalate to legal action, he's saying, why hasn't someone been the, the stronger, bigger person here and allowed themselves to be wronged, allowed themselves to be deprived I read a story about two neighboring farmers who were in, in a bitter dispute. Uh, one of them had built a fence between their farms, and the other uh, contended that the fence was built on his side of the boundary. After several efforts to resolve this matter, there was a, a legal battle that ensued. Well, finally, the, the farmer who had built the fence, he, he tried to, to get the dispute taken away, and it didn't happen. He got tired of this dispute, so he sold the farm. He sold the farm to a new owner. Well, the aggravated owner of the other farm who had filed the legal suit, who said the, the fence was on his property, uh, he was there the first day to meet the new owner. He said, I want you to know that when you bought this farm, you bought yourself a lawsuit. And he says, the fence between our two properties was built two feet on my side on this boundary. You know what the new owner said? He said, okay. He said, you know what, I'll move it four feet back just to be sure and you won't be cheated. The man said, well, that, that's more than I asked. I just said it was two feet. He said, no, I'm going to move it four feet. He said, the reason is, is because I'd rather have peace with my neighbor than a few feet of land. I'd rather have peace with my neighbor than a few feet of land. That's what Paul's talking about here. Why would you fight so hard for what you think belongs to you when it's so small when it comes to the testimony of Christ, when it comes to that brotherly, sisterly love that should exist between God's people. Can I give you a few Scripture verses as we come to a close? Uh, this is taught all through the Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Romans 12.17 and 18 Recompense to no man evil for evil. But provide things honest in the sight of all men, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. That's what he's saying about allowing yourself to be defrauded, allowing yourself to take wrong. He says, with everything that's in you to live peaceably with others. And then the famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 39-42, You have heard that it had been said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whomsoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain, or give, go with him two miles. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not thou away. What, what is all this saying? And I could see a million ways this teaching can be taken out of context. And I think the Sermon on the Mount is probably passages that have been taken out of context more than anything else in Scripture. I can see how this could be abused, so we have to be careful. 
But it's important that we remember in what Paul was teaching and in what Jesus was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, that these passages are dealing with our personal relationships. Our personal relationships. Jesus in here in Matthew 5, He's not talking about government. He's not talking about society's responsibility. Romans 13 talks about how that, that government bears the sword. Uh, then, in other words, they're there to, to punish wrongdoers, to ensure that justice so that a society can be lived in harmony and peace. So Jesus here is talking about our personal relationships. And even more importantly, the heart of this teaching, what Paul was saying, what Jesus is saying, the heart of it all in this teaching is that is this idea of self-denial. Self-denial. The denial of self. It means that Christians are not to be people who are vindictive, that Christians are, are not people who seek revenge. Christians are not people who selfishly demand their rights at the expense of the testimony of the gospel. That two feet of land means less in a Christian than having a, a brother or a sister. Having a good relationship. Having the opportunity to be able to share the gospel. That's what it means. It means that the testimony of Christ in our relationships with others means more to us than any profit, advantage, or material gain that we might get from some silly lawsuit. That we would rather take personal harm than see the testimony of Christ and His gospel harmed. And we might be tempted to hear teaching like this and think, well, well, this gives someone a license to take advantage of us. And I really like what, what theologian Robert Piccarelli said about that. It's on the screen. It's probably small writing, so you probably need brilliant eyes to see it, but just take it in faith if you can't see that. One could argue, he says, whether Paul means to permit a brother to cheat you without any protest at all. In some cases, that may well be the proper way. He's saying there are probably some times especially if it's between two brothers or two sisters in Christ, if you feel like you've been wronged. In fact, isn't that what the Scripture teaches in Matthew 18, that if we've been sinned against, we go to the person, right? And then if they won't listen, we take two or three others from the church and we bring our dispute to them that way. And then finally, if they won't hear, we bring it before the church. He said There's, there is a place if we have been cheated that, that, that it may be proper to bring this about. He says, however, in most instances, the teaching of Christ and of Paul will not be violated if one brother attempts in the right spirit to get wrongs redressed within the fellowship. But the pretense of standing for one's rights, he puts in quotation marks and then puts this in parentheses, it's probably always a pretense, is never worth the disruption of the fellowship and certainly not the taking of matters between believers before the unsaved. So, it, you know, it must look so strange uh, to the world uh, to see people willing to take wrong, willing to be defrauded, willing to suffer themselves to be deprived, rather than fighting tooth and nail for their rights. It, it would look really strange to them, and it should look strange to them. And it should point them uh, to our Savior, who the Scripture says in 1 Peter 2, 23, says that who, when He was reviled, Reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. That's what they'll see. Millions of lawsuits and over a million lawyers in this country. But as I mentioned at the beginning, there's coming a day when there'll be no more lawsuits. It's coming a day when the righteous judge, the Lord Jesus, will judge 
every person righteously. And His judgment will be perfect and His judgment will be final. And in the eternal kingdom of God, there'll be no more depravity. There'll be no more sinful hearts. There'll be no more curse. And that day is coming, but that day is not here yet. So as believers, right now, we are a part of the kingdom of God, that already but but not yet kingdom, that kingdom where God now rules over His church, He rules over us, and one day He's going to rule over the world. And until He rules over the world, we are to show the world what God's rule looks like now. So when they look at us, they ought to see people who handle disputes far differently than they handled them. So how should we handle them? Well, first, we've got to know who we are. If we forget our identity, if we forget our future, it's going to lead us in a lot of bad directions. The second is that when we have a dispute, especially if it's a, with another brother or another sister in Christ, the first place we take that dispute is to someone wise who knows Christ. And then the third is, is it really worth harming the testimony of Christ, harming the testimony of His church? Is it really worth it? Or should we allow ourselves to be deprived? Should we just let it go? Should we just release it? And do what Jesus did and and commit the situation to Him that judges righteously. And say, my treasure is is not here and now. I'm not laying up treasure here. I'm I'm laying up treasure uh, where neither moth or rust corrupts, where thieves don't break through and steal. And so, Lord, I'm going to take this wrong. I'm going to allow myself to be deprived trusting that you will judge righteously. And that shows the person of Christ just about more than anything else we could do. Let me give you three questions for us to answer honestly. The first is, what is your identity? He gave us two different types of people in verses 9-11. through He says, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the identity of some. The identity of the others are those who've been washed sanctified, justified. So you and I belong to one of those two groups. Are we a part of the unrighteous who will not inherit the kingdom of God? Or are we a part of those who've been washed, sanctified, and justified? What's your identity? Second question is who do you turn to when you have disputes? Who do you take disputes to? I I hope you take it uh, to people who are wise in Christ, who have God's Spirit, and who live by His values. And the third question is, are you determined to suffer wrong? Allow yourself to be deprived rather than seeing the testimony of Christ harmed. If you committed your life to Jesus Christ or made a spiritual decision, we would like to rejoice with you. Please connect with us on our website, livinghopechicago.com. We hope you'll join us next time for another encouraging message from God's Word.